This is Phantom Power. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Phantom Power, the podcast where we talk about sound studies, sound art, sound and culture, sound technology. I'm Mac Haygood. I hope you've been having a good summer, at least those of you in the Northern Hemisphere. I've been having a crazy busy summer uh, writing. I've been writing like a hundred pages of liner notes for a box set reissue that I don't think I'm allowed to talk about yet, but um, I will definitely share with you when that sees the light of day. Um, And I've been doing a lot of work on this podcast. We are getting ready for our fourth season of this show, and there's just a ton of fascinating stuff on deck, including the workplace politics of musicians in-ear monitors, the sound world of Harriet Tubman, a new cultural history of Echo, Kate Bush and the Fairlight Synthesizer, and the joyous minimalism of Julius Eastman. We'll be talking to folks like Karen Tonkson, David Cecchetto, the Shortwave Collective, Hildegard Westerkamp, and Dallas Taylor from that other sound podcast, 20,000 Hertz. And if that sounds like a ton of stuff, well, that's because it is a ton of stuff. I'm trying to shift this podcast into high gear. We're going to try putting out two episodes a month, and we will officially launch this when the season begins next month. But just a little sneak preview, we're starting a Patreon page in the hopes of paying some producers to help me keep up with the hectic pace of putting out two episodes a month. There will be perks for patrons like uh, exclusive content, expanded interviews, and even Phantom Power merch. So check it out at patreon.com slash phantom power, or just click the link in the show notes. Okay, as for this month and this episode, I want to do one more guest spot on our podcast feed. And for this, I need to thank one of our listeners, the sound artist and gorilla academic Ben Coleman, linked to his page in the show notes. Ben got in touch to say how much he enjoys Phantom Power, and he added, hey, by the way, you should check out this other podcast I'm into called Love is the Message. And I'm really glad I did. Love is the Message, Music, Dance, and Counterculture is a show from Tim Lawrence and Jeremy Gilbert, both of them authors, academics, DJs, and audiophile dance party organizers. I recognize Tim's name from his great book on Arthur Russell. Jeremy Gilbert is a professor of cultural and political theory at the University of East London and a prolific author. Tim and Jeremy have been longtime collaborators, and when the clubs closed and universities cut faculty hours due to COVID, they started a podcast. The way I would describe their show is it's like, imagine if you took this amazing college class where you learned about the intersections of global dance music and radical politics from the 1960s through to today. They do shows on disco, Motown, reggae, tropicalia, funk, you name it, with a really strong cultural studies perspective. And I think the episode that we're going to hear today is a perfect example of their approach. It's ostensibly an episode about Fela Kuti, 
but it's really this terrific seminar on the Black Atlantic and the political history of Nigeria, plus really cool music. So thank you, Ben, for the recommendation. And thanks to Tim and Jem for sharing the pod with me and doing this episode swap. And thanks to all of you for listening. Talk to you next month. Hello and welcome to Love is the Message, a podcast about music, the dance floor and counterculture. My name is Tim Lawrence and I'm joined once again by my very good friend, Jem Gilbert. Hi, Jem. How are you? I'm fine. A bit tired after the weekend. How are you? It's good. Yeah, I'm also a bit tired after the weekend, but it was a good party. We had a lucky cloud party, our second since what we were led to believe was the uh, beginning of the end of the pandemic but let's see on that front but uh, we had a good party all the same so um this week we are um returning to the um complicated and huge kind of subject of african music this is the second episode in what's going to be a, a three-part mini-series effectively sub-series on that uh and in this episode we're going to mainly be looking at nigeria uh nigerian music from 1970 to 75 we're also going to be uh starting off in sierra leone but before we do that we wanted to spend just a little bit more time um developing some of the ideas that we began to discuss at the beginning of the first episode on african music and in particular to think through the work of this very important british cultural critic paul gilroy and his work uh that was mainly discussed in uh this book the black atlantic so gem do you want to uh, get us going by saying a bit more about uh, how Paul theorised um, black culture and African culture within this framework of, of the diaspora. Sure. So Paul is coming out of the British cultural studies tradition. He did, he'd did done his PhD at the Birmingham Centre for Cultural Studies where, um, when Stuart Hall was there. I think Stuart, prob- I think Stuart left while he was doing his PhD. I'm not sure though. Uh, and his first book had been a book about racism in British culture called There Ain't No Black in the Union Jack, which is very sort of influential. But it, and it's a very powerful analysis, but it's sort of it's sort of what you would expect a kind of book about racism in British culture to be at its time. It's, a, you know, an exploration of the persistence and the roots and nature of, as I keep saying, racism, especially in sort of British media culture and political culture. And so the Black Atlantic is a very different sort of project, which is it's not it's not about racism. It's about it's about the you know the culture that has been produced by people resisting racism, mm. and it's also responding to the sort of theoretical debates around how to conceptualize sort of race and racism that have been raging in sort of theoretical and artistic circles over the previous decade. Uh, I guess there's nearly a decade in between Ain't No Black in the Union Jack and The Black Atlantic coming out, I think. And there's really the debates that have been going on in the second half of the 80s are really revolve around this this notion of essentialism. So essentialism 
becomes this key term of reference in debates around both race and gender. I mean, if anybody listening, which most people will be, has heard of Judith Butler, then Judith Butler really becomes famous as the big proponent of a wholly anti-essentialist theory of sex and gender in the again in the late 80s late uh, late 80s early 90s but what of course what's interesting is that at that particular so and this term essentialism in this kind of theoretical work is like a bad thing essentialism is bad and what it means is what essentialism means is you think there is some ahistorical non-sociological essence to gender or identity or national or nationality or something. So the ultimate essentialist is the person who believes that there is some essential ultimate notion of you know, Germanness or masculinity or, you know, blackness or whiteness, which then might be expressed in culture, but and might even be respected by every, all the other cultures, but which is kind of historically unchanging. And the basic observation there is that, well, especially if you're talking about issues of race, the whole the whole issue really is that the very idea that there are these things called races that exist in the world um, is the basic idea of racism. I mean, the comparison with gender and sex is sort of important because, I mean, the reason Butler comes to be is this very influential and very radical figure is because the normally accepted view among sociologists up to that point and social theorists was. Uh, there is such a thing as biological sex, which has a material physical reality. And then there is also such a thing as gender roles and gender identities, and they have a complicated relationship between them. Um, but there is a there is a basic biological reality of sex. And Butler sort of wants to say, no, there isn't, that actually even the experience of sex is dependent upon culture or cultural norms and cultural experiences. I'm not going to get into this now. I mean, I would say she she never does provide a very adequate theorization of how that's supposed to work, actually. She sort of goes halfway, in my opinion, and then just becomes a famous public intellectual who writes about various political issues. And I, I don't think the theorization of how it is that power relationships produce variable experiences, even of the, the biological body, is ever developed in her work. I think you can develop that theory. I don't think she really does. I think other people get closer but that's a whole other set of issues um but there's an important contrast there because although it is very contentious um to say whether whether it's very it's increasingly contentious today to say that you know there is such a thing as biological sex which is given by nature nonetheless you can see why even if you are very committed to the view that in fact you know biological sex isn't real uh, you can see why people think it is you know, there's genetics, there's Y chromosomes, there's people having different genitalia. What I'm trying to say is I also think there's a dip, there's a problem, there's a potential problem in making a direct comparison with race. Because even mm. if you think those relative differences are small, you know, there's a pretty solid scientific evidence that, for example, if you have Y chromosomes, it, your body will probably produce more testosterone than someone who doesn't. And that will have effects on your neuro, your, neuro, your neurology, your, chem, your brain chemistry at certain times. Yeah. You know, it will have some effects on your behavior or have effects on things like muscle development. Uh, in the case of race, the whole point is there is no like biological correlation between having like feature, facial features and skin tone, which are typical of somebody from, say, Central Africa or typical of someone from Scandinavia, and almost any other identifiable and measurable trait to do with anything like, you know, hormones or balances in the body, you know, behavioral characteristics, brain chemistry or anything. Yeah, yeah, so, quite right. 
race, so sex may or may not exist. Race definitely doesn't. Race definitely is just a kind of social historical category. Now, the thing is, what's but what's happening in the late 80s in the world of cultural theory is that people are trying, is that people are mostly quite excited about the idea of trying to be as anti-essentialist as possible. And so Butler becomes, you know, the the iconic English language cultural theorist of a generation by kind of planting her flag on that particular mountain, I think. And in the, also in the field of uh, theories around race and racism, there's a wave of writers who are arguing against what they see as the potential implicit essentialism of, say, African nationalist, um, black nationalist, of Afrocentric thinking of the 70s and first half of the 80s. So people like the British theorist Kabina Mercer are also arguing in the second half of the 80s that really the most radical thing to do around race is to just... is to is to advertise its plasticity, is to play around with the very idea of rejecting any idea of blackness at all or, or whiteness. Um, Homie Barber, you know, the great uh, British, uh, in, you know, so Anglo, more British really. Um, no, I would say Anglo-Indian. Cultural theorist becomes famous for his concept of hybridity, like emphasising the extent to which all cultures are kind of hybrid forms of other cultures. And that there is no cultural purity and no one should look for it anywhere. But of course, the problem then is, well, what do you do apart from just say, well, nobody should talk about race at all? Like apart from just say, the, apart from just say, well, nobody should even acknowledge that there have been sort of cultural forms such as music that seem to have been associated with, you know, ethnically defined groups of people. Well, what do you do? Like, what what are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to just not talk about blackness at all? And people like Stuart Hall um, are, are sort of really they are rather, they are sort of reacting against what seems to be a somewhat kind of nationalist strand in certain certain areas of black studies they definitely are defining themselves against a certain kind of black nationalism which is very influential in some of the american uh, black studies departments you could think about a contemporary british scholar like Hinde andrews as somebody who is very explicitly trying to revive a kind of black nationalism uh, and is really not you know andrews is a good example he's a very powerful sort of thinker and writer but he very explicitly is not interested in questions like how do you build cross racial coalitions against racism not interested you know he's interested in a, you know he's self consciously a black nationalist so that's what they're writing against and I think Paul in this book, in by 94, when this book comes out, The Black Atlantic, Paul is sort of reacting again against that. It's interesting, actually, The Black Atlantic comes out at the same year as one of our favourite books about black music, because The Black Atlantic is only one chapter of it is about music. Mm. But one of my, my all time favourite books about black music is Trisha Rose's book, Black Noise, about hip hop, which also comes out in 1994. Yeah. And actually, I think the Trisha Rose in Black Noise and Paul Gilroy in The Black Atlantic, they are both reacting and they are both responding in a way which is quite obvious, really, when you, when you think about it. It seems quite obvious, which is to say, look, fine, you know, the experience of being black is a historical experience, not a bio biological experience but the fact that it's a historical experience not a biological experience doesn't mean it's any less real you know the cops are still going to bang you up for being black whether or not there's any biological reality to it or not you know your ancestors were still subject to slavery and even at the level of music you know you might have come from a culture in which you know in which music making is a part of everyday life like from before somebody can walk or you might not have done and if you have then you're probably going to have a different relationship to music and rhythm and things like that than if you haven't so 
the historical experience is going to produce a particular set of cultural forms which are characteristically black, even if even if by saying that you're not saying that there is some essential blackness which is being expressed by them. So then the question is, well, how do you conceptualize that then? What is this thing? What, how do you name and describe this historical experience, you know, which has produced what we would refer to today as black culture? And one of the conceptual tools which people have, are not just Gilroy, Gilroy isn't the first person to do this, but one of the conceptual tools that they've used to talk about this is to talk about black experience since the period of slavery in terms of diaspora, which is a historically is a term which originally comes from the Jewish culture, which is referred to the diaspora is the dispersed community or non-community of Jewish people after the Jewish people have left um, Palestine, Israel and spread out around the world. You know, that spreading out around the world is the diaspora. Whenever I explain this to students, I always think it's worth pointing out there's another term that we associate with modern black experience, which is also borrowed from Jewish experience, which is the ghetto. Ghetto is also is the originally a term for the Jewish quarter in Warsaw. Yeah, and it was forced. It was for, it was Lee, it was enforced by law. It wasn't a choice. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, yeah, yeah it's yeah, not like yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Of course. So, and of course, that idea, that co- that comparison with the biblical, the, the the story of the children of Israel, like you know, di- you know, spread out from their homeland, exiled from their homeland, spread out across the world, you know, that story as it's told in the Old Testament ends up having a really powerful resonance with black people from the early nineteenth, from the early twentieth century, really from the late, really from the nineteenth century. It's not again, it's not like Paul and people in the eighties had for, were the first people to have the idea of making that comparison. That comparison is there. It's an important part. Of. It's a really important part of the kind of language of the spirituals. It's an important part, very important part of the vocabulary and language of Rastafari. Hmm. So, um, so what Paul is doing really is trying to sort of conceptualize this in somewhat more rigorous terms than than would be implied by just you know talking about you know Babylon and and Rastafari. I think. I mean, because Paul, I mean, Paul himself had been a, an anti-racist activist. In the 70s and 80s, he'd been very immersed in dub and sound system culture um, during that time as well. Hmm. So this concept of the Black Atlantic is partly a way of sort of answering this question. Well, what is this thing which that historical experience of slavery has produced? And Paul is very kind of uncompromising in stressing the need to to appreciate that whenever we're talking about black culture, you know, however in the in the Western world, in the modern world, however celebratory we're being about it, we are talking about something which is a direct result of slavery, the slave trade. That the modern slave trade, which gets going, I mean, if you, you can trace it back to the 16th century, but it really sort of peaks in the 18th century and carries on into the 19th in, in some places. The slave trade, which is absolutely plays a central role in the formation of modern industrial capitalism, is the thing which produces, you know, modern black experience. So the Black Atlantic is the name for this sort of broad cultural, a sort of unit of cultural experience, which is shared by people in the Caribbean, 
people in Europe, especially in Britain, and people in the Americas, uh, especially the North American cities. And the Black Atlantic, on the by the 20th century, the Black Atlantic is made up of the music, the writing, the literature, the thought, the political activism of, of black people in all those places. But what originally produces it, what, what draws the, the, triang- the lineaments of the Black Atlantic is the, the so-called triangular trade, the trade which um, saw slaves being taken from West Africa and uh, d- um, forced to live on plantations in Caribbean and the, the Caribbean and the Americas, which then saw sugar, rum, in particular, uh, and some other pro- products, some other cash crops, eventually cotton um, in, from the southern United American plantations, being taken to Europe, where it sold. Um, and weapons and manufacturers goods being taken back to Africa to be traded for more slaves. So, and it's that it's that it's the the three core the three sided sort of boundary, you know, the three sided triangle of the triangle the triangle. Well, obviously, all triangles are three sided, <laughs> but the three sides those are the three sides of the triangular trade, and they what they are what end up defining the Black Atlantic. So there's there's two other things like I think important things to, to say about it. Like one is that Paul stresses the idea that the culture of the Black Atlantic is both an inherently modern experience. So one of the things people like Paul and in this Paul is very much allied to the kind of anti-essentialist moment in cultural theory. They want to get out, and this is also very relevant to what we've talked about in the series for patrons on Afrofuturism. They want to get away from any idea that what it is that defines the specific cultural qualities of black culture is sort of primitiveness or naturalness or organicness. They want to get away from that because that's precisely the way of thinking about African people and their descendants, which was used to justify slavery in the first place, the idea that they're primitive, they're childlike. And so Paul absolutely wants absolutely wants to stress the modernness of black culture. And mm. you know, most of the book is not about music. It's about the writing of people like du, like Du Bois, um, the great, you know, sort of one of the you know, great sort of a uh, tradition of, of black scholarship and, and especially in America, and, ve- and very convincingly demonstrating the extent to which, well, you know, black like black social theorists, especially in the States, are like some of the first people sort of to really get a handle on modern capitalism and like how it works, like not just at the level of race, etc. Um, but he also says, and he describes the culture of the Black Atlantic as a counterculture to modernity. It's a culture. This is the, this is the great, this is the moment as well in sort of cultural and social theory when people are really obsessed with the question of modernity and post-modernity. And he says there's a, there is a counterculture to modernity. Well, I think that's really, it's really worth, yeah, I mean, sorry, it's that we just, yeah, just to make the obvious point is that's what we're, that's also one of our, our key concerns in this, in, in this, in, in the entire Yeah, podcast. absolutely is to like, like be exploring forms of counterculture and Paul's framing of black diasporic culture as a counterculture modernity is obviously very significant for us in this regard. Well, it is really significant. And also, I mean, to be fair, as well, I mean, Paul is one of the people who like, you know, in my case, personally, to be honest, Paul is one of the people who belong to that generation, the generation who were taught by Stuart Hall, etc. People that were now in their 60s, coming into their 70s, some of them, of cultural theories. He is the person who just personally, individually gave me the most direct encouragement when I started to say a few years ago, 
I didn't think the idea of counterculture was slightly embarrassing as it had come to be largely regarded in, in many of those circles. And I think it was regarded mm. by people like Stuart Hall, to be honest. You know, mm. I started to, to say, no, I don't think it was embarrassing. I think it's really important. Mm. Well, Paul is one of the people who gave me sort of direct encouragement. Also talking about things like Afro-psychedelia, you know, Paul's been very encouraging with that kind of framing. I mean, just in sort of personal chats, really, not in any sort of particular... I mean, he's also been, a, you know, an inspiration in his writing and yeah, yeah. Uh, his, his essay about Jimi Hendrix and his essay collection, Darker Than Blue, is kind of quite important in formulating that idea. But I think the last thing I'll say before we sort of get off the theory, I say one of the... I'll say what I think to me is... I mean, you, you say whatever more you want to say, but to me what is one of the most sort of uh, interesting arguments you make specifically about music in... The Black Atlantic and the chapter of the book that's about music. And he's trying to address the question of like, well, why is it that African-American music has ended up having this extraordinary potency? And it's funny, it's something I always say to students. I don't think, I, don't, I can't remember if we've said it on the show yet, but if you'd have said to anyone in like 1890, right, we've just invented this thing called, we've just invented audio recording. Like Thomas Edison who's like invented it. He thinks that indeed people will be listening to music at home with this technology one day. But if you said to people, right, pick a group of people on the planet, that group of people, it's their music, that not just once, not just twice, time again, for a hundred plus years, again and again and again, it's their music that is going to change world music. Again, it's that everyone around the world is going to be interested in engaging. Who are you going to pick? But you're going you're gonna to pick the descendants of the plantation slaves, like the people who'd, who'd only just been freed from slavery a generation previously. No, hardly anyone's going to pick those people, but that's what happens. And so it's yeah. one of the great questions about modern culture. It's one of the great questions about the culture of the past 150 years. Well, how did that happen? Like, why did that happen? And there are many different ways of answering the question, but Paul is partly interested in that question. And he's also interested in the question of why music ends up occupying this central role within the culture of the Black Atlantic. And his argument partly deploys this philosophical category of the sublime. The sublime is just a term. It comes from people like Immanuel Kant, and it just means something you can't quite put into word. I mean, in, in Kant, it means that the experience of the sublime is a category of aesthetic experience, which is both too intense to be put into words, but also somehow transcends even the distinction between sort of pleasure and or plain or beauty and ugliness. You know, his famous example is the experience of a rainstorm in the mountains. It's sort of awe-inspiring in a way which you can't put into words, and it's be, even it goes beyond any simple notion of beauty or uh, ugliness. And Paul has this notion of the slave sublime. To put very simply, is the idea that the experience of slavery is so horrific that it can't be put into words, that its intensity can only infuse kind of music and sonic experience. And I always tell students this, and I always start to choke up when I'm talking about it, because I, I, was, I was pretty sceptical. I didn't really buy this when I first read it. I thought this seemed like a bit of a stretch and you could come up with many other explanations for why the people of the African diaspora produced music that was so potent and why music was so central to that culture. And it wasn't actually until I, start, until I had children. And I remember, I always, this is true, I'm not making this up. Like the, I remember very strikingly having to, exp, the day I had to explain to my oldest daughter like what slavery had been, like that slavery had happened, because they started to do stuff about, about Black History Month at school, but of course they don't really go into much detail, sort of primary school children, about what it's all about. And, you know, 
you know, my, you know, half my family, like all of yours, are, are Jewish. You know, I talked to her about the Holocaust. I don't know why. I didn't find it that hard. I mean, it was a horrible thing to explain, but I talked about it. But talking about slavery, about the kind of, you know, you know, two centuries of kind of, you know, constant sort of torture, deportation, the kind of violence of slavery, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't get the words out. But the first time I tried, I just couldn't talk about it. And, um, and something about that kind of unspeakability of it, I think, you know, really, you know, I did, I did sort of experience. And I think, um, and so ever since then, I was, after that, I was very kind of impressed by Paul's analysis. I think there's something there about, about it. But I, as I sort of said, I was talking to students about this, our students just the other day, and I said, well, you know, there's also, you know, we don't have to have a sort of quasi-mystical idea of the, the agonising pain and unspeakable horror of slavery being translated into the affective power of black music. It's, I mean, that's part of what's going on in Paul's argument. But also a lot of what Paul's argument amounts to is saying, look, <clears throat> these guys, you know, it was people of the African diaspora, the victims of slavery, especially those who ended up then ended up living in the industrial cities of, of the United States, like the most the most modern places in the world. They absolutely experienced the sharp end of capitalism, industrialization, urbanization. They experienced the sharp end of it like no other group of people on the planet. And so that experience of oppression and, and of surviving oppression, of having to survive oppression, is, was is bound to have produced a culture which has a particular intensity, uh, but also which other people around the world are going to be able to resonate with to the extent that, well, we've all had some of those experiences. Because, of course, when you're thinking about things like the, the relationship between, you know, white listenerships, white audiences and, and black culture, black music, of course, it's always important to keep in mind that, well, you know, if you're talking about people in, the, in Britain, you know, it's not like most of our ancestors had a great time of it during the period of slavery and the Industrial Revolution. You know, most white people in Britain, our ancestors were people who'd been farmers for literally 10,000s of years. And then within the period of a couple of generations, they got thrown off the land, forced to go work in these industrial factories, in which conditions were, you know, many people thought worse than those on the plantations. So... And I think that kind of the extent, and I, so I think that sort of the resonances which black music has ended up having with many people around the world, you know, they're to do with the fact that, well, to some extent, most of us have to deal with the alienation and the oppression which industrial capitalism has produced, even though black people have obviously experienced it much, you know, differently and, and, and worse. And that's what Paul's stuff really makes me think about. Yeah, no, that's really, I think it's very persuasive. Um, i I mean, I would get, without getting into sort of hierarchies of oppression and with you know genocides and slavery and that kind of thing, uh, I agree. I agree that there's there's clearly there's something about the 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 horror and the sustained horror of that experience, and then and and the way that uh, non-black people, in particular white working class people, and cultures have found themselves, you know, uh, forming a kind of um, sort of say almost um spiritual and and aesthetic um alliance with 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 that culture we've seen it you know numerous times over in kind of you know with north northern white working class cultures in the uk kind of forming an, an affinity with black culture um similar similar things have you know can be drawn similar links can be drawn in wales and certainly in certainly in ireland um so i think that's very true 
Um, no, that's really, you know, it's, it's persuasive and, and, and powerful argument. I was going to say a few other, I was going to introduce a few uh, questions and thoughts about Paul's work. And um, I also was going to want to introduce a few further thoughts on the um, geography of of the slave trade and the way the ostensible way in which different patterns within that trade led to different uh, forms of instrumentation and music making taking root in um, Latin America and Cuba versus the southern states of the United States. But I think we've probably been doing enough theory talk for now for um, this particular episode. So we're going to do one more episode on Africa so we can come back to some of these themes then perhaps. Um, but we did want to um, sort of introduce um, some background material, I guess, to Nigeria. Well, maybe we should just say, well, let's just say Nigeria is a really key node in the Black Atlantic. And, it, and, it's, and it's easy to forget. People often forget, Nigeria's got a huge population. It's like, what is it, 100 odd million? Um, it's one of the largest sort of Black African populations in the world it's a lot really it is the largest it is the yeah. largest i mean there's a statistic i saw a couple of years ago that i haven't gone out i should have gone and checked but that like a really high a relatively high proportion of the total number of black people on the planet live in nigeria mm. so nigeria is really sort of important and so we're going to and nigerian music has been massively important to the culture of the black atlantic in, in and and that's what we're going to be talking about for the rest of the show Let's play some music. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing is to well, we we may come back to this, but it's also just to note that um, it's it's a uh, in in addition to being um, the largest economy in Africa, having become independent in 1960, it's also uh, partly distinguished in as much as it's a huge petroleum producer. I think it's the twelfth largest petroleum producer in the world. So it's another important thing that kind of makes up the, you know, contributes to making Nigeria. I'm not sure actually it's got the large. I think it may well have the largest population, but certainly also the largest economy uh, in Africa. But yeah, let's listen to some music, and uh, it's not uh, Nigerian music that we're going to start off with. Though we will be spending the rest of the show in Nigeria, we're going to start off in Sierra Leone with an artist called Geraldo Pino. And uh, because we've been done, doing quite a lot of talking so far, maybe we should just get straight to the music and then talk a bit about how that music came about. So uh, um, this is Geraldo Pino's "Power to the People." Same power, more power To my brother, more power To the people, more power To my friends, more power To my brother, more power To the people, more power Come down, brother, and blow So yeah, Geraldo Pino uh, is a singer and guitarist and band leader um, who uh, died at the age of 69 in 2009. And he's, was, he became this sort of major influence on West Africa's soul, funk and Afrobeat scene in the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, and is partly important because he ended up making a huge impression on uh, the then young fella Kuti. And to a certain extent, Geraldo Pino also remains a, a relatively unheard of uh, musician, certainly in, in comparison to figures such as Fela Kuti or, or Manu Dibango. 
Um, so Geraldo Pino was was uh, raised in um, Freetown, Sierra Leone. Uh, he was he was named Gerald Pine. Uh, he was the son of a Nigerian-based lawyer uh, who rebelled, got into music, uh, co-founded a, a, a lineup called the Heartbeats at the at the start of the 1960s, and was basically playing covers of American hits and also Congolese versions of the rumba, which was a sound that was then sort of sweeping through uh, West Africa. The most famous Congolese musicians of that era were Franco and Dr. Nico. And it was those names, Franco and Dr. Nico, that inspired Gerald Pine to rename himself the more exotic Geraldo Pino. Oh, really? So I never that. knew that. Yeah. So that's, <laughs> so that's, I always yeah, wondered yeah. how he got that. I always thought that that name is not Sierra Leonean or Nigerian. <laughs> like, how did he get it? <laughs> yeah, no. It's really it's quite quite good fun that Geraldo, story. Gerald Pine. <laughs> so they became this like they were this sort of the highest they were one of the highest earning bands in in West Africa. Uh, it was also a period in in African history where met, uh, set, numerous countries were kind of entering into this quite optimistic post colonial era, and the Heartbeats provided. Um, many listeners with a sophisticated and quite internationalized sound and they toured Ghana and Nigeria and um, Geraldo Pino himself had this kind of quite sort of uh, powerful stage presence as a performer and he also kind of went around as a sort of um, figure that resembled a sort of playboy pop star he had a big big convertible flashy clothes and he just had all this hardware that was not really that particularly common in africa at the time he was importing amplifiers um electronic instruments and also had a six microphone pa system uh, that might sound you know relatively straightforward to us but back then was uh, i think it was the first of its kind in in africa and in the 60s and, and early 70s, he was recording these, you know, incredibly um, sort of raucous funk, you know, tracks, uh, such as Power to the People. Give Me Ganja was another big one. Let Them Talk, Make Me Feel Good. Um, and Fella first heard Geraldo Pino perform in 1966 when Geraldo Pino played in, in Lagos, Nigeria. Um, and at the time, um, Fella was playing a kind of jazzy high life sounds uh, and was quite startled and taken aback when he heard Geraldo Pino arrive and basically perform a heavily James Brown influenced style of music uh, through all of this equipment, cutting this kind of, you know, rather sort of flashy and flamboyant Playboy style figure. There was this uh, authorised biography of Fela Kuti by Carlos Moore called Fela, This Bitch of a Life, uh, the authorised biography of Africa's musical genius. And there's a lot, basically the book is kind of lots of interviews with, uh, mainly with Fella. Um, in that book, Fella said, I was playing high life jazz when Geraldo Pino came to town in 66. Uh, I'm kind of skimming a bit here, but that that's what upset everything, man. He came to town with James Brown's music uh, and with such equipment you've never seen, man. This was tearing Lagos to pieces. He had all Nigeria in his pack pocket made me fall right on my ass man uh, i've never heard this kind of music before soul music uh, and he came in this big way all this flashy equipment um and and fella Kuti kind of concluded this little passage in the book saying i wanted to split town leave disappear go far away to america find my own way 
in any case, make it myself because I saw I couldn't make it with this man around, even in Nigeria. It's pretty startling stuff, I think, to kind of uh, for fella to be kind of so, you know, in awe of this person to the extent that he couldn't even make it, uh, you know, make it in this guy's shadow to a certain extent. In 1967, so the next year, uh, fellow went to Ghana um, with a trumpeter from Nigeria called Zil Onia, and they went to a club in a Ringway hotel. And again, Geraldo Pino was playing to this packed crowd. Um, And it was there that Feller starts to talk about, you know, Feller only having one microphone for his whole band. And he says, this motherfucking Pino had six. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, and he says, the whole place was jumping. The music carried me away completely. To me, it was really swinging. Can you understand my situation at that club that night? Needing to find a job myself, but enjoying the music so much that I even forgot I myself was a fucking musician. So this is, so there we are. This is uh, Geraldo Pino, you know, know, very, you know, who then subsequently, you know, somehow, you know, didn't, didn't develop a high profile in the West and sort of went somewhat out of circulation until his music was started to be re-released. I'm forgetting the exact dates when a couple, I think it's two of his albums were re-released. I do remember when uh, hearing, I think it was you, Gem, actually playing uh, Power to the People at a Beauty and the Beat party and just thinking it was like ferocious and, you know, such an amazingly powerful uh, party record. But anyway, so that's um, that's the background to Geraldo Pino. Love is, love is, love is the message. I mean, there's been a, a massive kind of industry really of reissuing all this african music mostly from the 70s over the past sort of 15 20 years and i i what one can say about it is it is just utterly extraordinary the amount of music that is just demonstrably a very high quality like very compelling like to contemporary listeners that just completely dropped out of circulation like for Years and years, and and uh, I mean, I think one has to put this in the sort of global context that there's this period, as as you said, of sort of post-colonial optimism and of and of resistance to some extent to Western imperialism in the seventies, and then from the sort of early eighties onwards, with the imposition of the global neoliberal economic order and the kind of effectively the imposition of enormous sort of unserviceable debts on African countries by to Western banks and their collaborators in the Western governments you know the, all that all that stuff really that stuff it doesn't completely disappear i mean obviously there's still great african music being produced today but it not only stops being put out in the same way and in the same quantities but a lot of it is just completely forgotten it just completely disappears and it's been up to sort of western collectors in, in many cases to revive this stuff um, in a way which uh, some people have said it has have found problematic. You know, it, it creates a bit of an impression of the sort of the white slavier or the or the cultural colonialist, like going out there and finding this stuff. But ultimately, you know, my response is always to say, well, if you know, would you rather Geraldo Pino gets reissued by Soundway in two thousand five, or or just completely forgotten forever? Because that seems to have been what the choice on the table was. Um, but it's just extraordinary, and I, I've got to say, as someone who spent, you know, who spends a fair amount of money on rare African records, there is still like tons of stuff out there that's never been reissued. It's really hard to get. It's just amazing.
Geraldo Pino is a good example, but we're going to talk now about someone who is not at all <laughs> unknown. Someone who, Tim, you've just been talking about, Tim. Uh, indeed, as the authorised biography says, the genius of African music, uh, and not without good cause, Fela Kuti. Uh, Fela Kuti is, again, he's one of those figures who you just, you know... Uh, I, I want I want to think he's overrated because he's so highly rated, but I just can't. You know, he, you know, I just think, you know, the Felicity, the great Nigerian. I mean, he's he's mostly a band leader. I mean, he's a singer. He plays sax. He plays other instruments. He's more of a kind of instrumentalist than James Brown. But he's called, but he's mostly sort of a band leader, and it's mostly through kind of a very specific styles of, of arrangement. Or as with James Brown, that he be- and, and with Gerardo Pino, that he sort of develops his very distinctive sound, uh, and it's and the sound that he develops, like what comes to be known as Afrobeat, over the seventies, which is still a kind of living form today, um, is just you know it is really sort of extraordinary manifestation of a, of, of sonic possibilities. You know, it's a, it's one of the you know it's produces a kind of music which you know in my experience you know. I think after sort of classic New York disco of the 70s, I can't think of any other music which is as easy to play to a wide range of audiences and DJ. And like people, even people who don't think they're going to like Afrobeat, I guess reggae, sort of the Bob Marley's of classic reggae as well as a similar status. But like with, yeah, even people you don't think are going to dance to like 18 minute instrumental, percussive, big band sort of jams uh, will dance to it. But this is a record from really before he, that Afrobeat sound is sort of fully developed and codified. Indeed, this is a record that was recorded during his stay in the States. This is record, He was living in California and this was recorded in 1969 and the track is called uh, Viva Nigeria. Every country has its own problems. So has Nigeria, so has Africa. Let us bind our wounds and live together in peace. Nigeria, one nation indivisible. Long live Nigeria. Viva Africa. Okay, so when we were getting ready for the show, I mean, you were talking, we were talking about how this sort of, you know, it's 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 interesting. This is sort of a transitional sort of piece of music, I think. It, it, I think to me it sort of seems to be marking a transition point between indeed sort of high life and, and high life jazz and Afrobeat as we would come to hear it by the early seventies. Do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was a part of the discussion as to what extent is this a fully re- realized Afrobeat uh, recording or to what extent does it kind of end up developing further? And yeah, I think this is a, it's a pretty interesting, it's a, it's a really compelling first articulation of Afrobeat, but it does end up kind of, as we'll go on to hear quite quite uh, shortly, does it does get taken further. I mean, the beginnings of Afrobeat are sort of quite interesting and sort of almost loop back to this kind of Gerald, Geraldo Pino kind of moment um, and influence on Fella. And it got to the point where Fella would sort of, you know, revert, you know, um, you know, um, started to think about how he was going to integrate kind of elements of Geraldo Pino into his music and in particular kind of, you know, a, a sort of soul and funk element. And um, Fela returned to Ghana and, and, and sorry, re- returned to Nigeria and sort of in the, uh, no, sorry, it was actually in Ghana that he was um, sitting in a club in Accra 
and um, heard that every you know, effectively everyone was kind of you know imitating Geraldo Pino one way or another. There was really a kind of soul sound to the African music that was being kind of created at that moment. And it was at this point that Fella uh, turned around and said, you know, I've actually got to be very original and clear myself um, from this sound. And he said, I must identify myself, you know, not straightforwardly with the United States sounds, um, but I must identify, this, this is a quote, I must identify myself with Africa, then I will have an identity. Uh, and he turned around to this friend he was with, and he said, uh, "Raymond," I uh, said, "I said, Raymond, you see that my mu- you see that my music. I must give it a name, a real African name that is catchy. I've been looking for mu- for names to give it, and I've been thinking of calling it Afrobeat." So this is kind of 1968 is the beginning of that term. And Fella then kind of in 1969 uh, went to the United States. Uh, he'd already he'd already kind of spent time in the United Kingdom. Uh, he was still quite. Uh, apolitical at this at this particular point, although he had started to comment that uh, he thought that um, in the uh, Biafran War that started in in 1966 in Nigeria, that he thought that the Nigerian government was wrong and that the Biafrans are right uh, to want to secede. Uh, you know, he was arguing that it was only from secession of these different kind of groupings that had been sort of forced together to sort of form modern Nigeria. Only from secession could we come together again, um, but by not seceding, again, this is a quote from Vela, but by not seceding, we're put together by force. Uh, the the Ebos don't understand why they're in Nigeria. The Yorubas don't know what's happening, and the Houses they want to dominate everybody. The whole thing is a fucking confusion. I don't even know myself why we're, why we're in Nigeria. How we all got to be together in this country. So I'm, this I'll come back to this in just a moment because I think it's kind of quite interesting to think about that in terms of um, this track uh, Viva Nigeria. Um, which is a bit surprising given that this is these are kind of fellas' emerging thoughts. But he went to the States not being particularly political. Uh, he played for the NAACP, but, and he, he did the gig willingly, but he didn't want to do it because he was political particularly, uh, but because he wanted to make some money. They were sort of struggling to survive, uh, having sort of travelled to the United States. But he then went to the, to, to the West Coast, to uh, Los Angeles, and he became friends with Sandra Smith, uh, which was kind of this very important meeting and development for him. And Sandra Smith uh, was a woman who had been involved with uh, the Black Panthers and she introduced Fella to lots of writings of activists, uh, Martin Luther King, Angela Davis, Jesse Jackson, and in particular Malcolm X. And it was really that through this friendship that Fella started to become sort of more politically realised. It was Sa- Sandra Smith who, told, who said to Fella, Again, this is again from his this biography of his uh, fellow. Don't say that Africans taught the white man. Look, the Africans have history. I said they don't have, and then fellow replies, they don't have shit, man. No history, man. We're slaves. And at this point, uh, Sandra Smith got up and brought him a book. She said I should read it. Then she said I was in jail for three months and gave him the whole story of how she had kind of been arrested for being involved in a Black Panthers protest rally in Los Angeles. And the book that she gave him was the autobiography of Malcolm X. And it just completely devastated Feller and his his view of the world. Uh, he's you know he's, he's kind of again the lines out of his of this biography. I've never run. Uh, I never read a book like that before in my life. Uh, I wanted to be like Malcolm X. Fuck it, shit. I wanted to be Malcolm X. You know, I was so unhappy that this man was killed. Everything about Africa started coming back to me. 
Then one day I sat down at the piano in Sandra's house. I said to Sandra, do you know what? I've just been fooling around. I haven't been playing African music. So now I want to write African music for the first time. I want to try. So all of the, there's a lot of stuff going on in that. But that was this was his politicization, really, uh, in, in Los Angeles. And when he returned to... and I th- So I think, are we... So did he record this track whilst he was in the Viva Nigeria, yeah. whilst he was at... Yeah. yeah, so this is it. So this is what I remembered, is that he... It, was, it brings... It sort of brings together a number of the elements that will feature prominently in Afrobeat. But the he I think he recorded it in a much more sympathetic way to the Nigerian government than he was minded, because basically he was trying to raise some money and get funding in order to survive economically in the United States. It's, it's obviously sometimes hard for us to kind of, th- you know, think back with these kind of globally famous musicians such as Fela Kuti to imagine a time when they could barely survive from one day to to the next in order to put food on the table. But that was pretty much what was happening at one point during their stay in the United States. So it's the only way I can understand him using a lyric, for example, such as Viva Nigeria, when he was actually becoming highly critical of, of the Nigerian government. Well, you can be a nationalist and be critical of your government. I mean, national. The idea. I mean, European nationalism in places like France is formed by the resistance to the ancien regime. So, don't think they're necessarily contradictory. I mean, it's something we'll talk about more in the next episode about African music. I think, but there is. I mean, you know, government. I mean, African governments, at least in some spaces, are at this time are sponsoring musicians. Mm-hmm. So, it's it can be a you know. That wouldn't have been a, it. Wouldn't have been a meaningful idea in Britain or the States that you would celebrate your country in the hope the government would then give you some money if you were like a, playing rock music. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in African countries, in uh, particularly at this moment in history, it's not an unreasonable expectation. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, he returned to the he returned to Nigeria, and at that point, uh, renamed his band uh, Nigeria Seventy. Um, and he also uh, established um, the Africa Shrine, um, his nightclub, which had already been open for a, for a, 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 a little while, but he renamed it the Shrine, uh, effectively to kind of give it some sort of, you know, uh, to stress the powerful importance, you know, the worshipful importance that he wanted this... This, um... this is within, what, a year or two of the sanctuary being opened in New York? Well, it's it's well, it's exactly the same time actually, nineteen seventy. That is that is interesting, isn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah. And you know, so Afrobeat. So Afro. It was from this point that Afrobeat sort of started to take shape, and in it, it was you know combining you know lots of elements from you know traditional sort of Yoruban music, some elements of high life, but also much a much greater emphasis on 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 funk with Tony Allen's drumming, of course, becoming absolutely central to the aesthetic and, of course, sort of elements of jazz as well. And just as a point of interest, I hadn't, I didn't, I didn't know this until uh, just doing some some prep for the show. But this this key figure in the politicization of of Fella, uh, Sandra Smith, ended up performing on his 1976 album Upside Down. Tune in, turn on, get, get down. down. We could talk about James Brown's tour of Africa, 
1970, yeah. because this comes, you know, soon after Fellow returned. So, yeah, so James Brown went on tour to Africa in December 1970. So, again, this is maybe six months after Fellow's return or a year after Fellow's return. And during this tour, uh, went to Zambia and Nigeria. Um, at the time, Zambia was led by Kenneth Kaunda, um, who had a decade earlier gone to the United States to meet Martin Luther King. Um, and while he was in Zambia, James Brown made this observation uh, in which he said, the difference between Zambians and black Americans is that Zambians belong to themselves and Afro-Americans are trying to discover themselves. Um, so there's, it's quite interesting, I think, and this is something maybe we'll talk a bit more about at the beginning of the next episode, to think about how black Atlantic culture replays itself in, when, in, in Africa. And, and this is what we're starting to get when we see the influence of, of, this black Atlant- of this black Atlantic music, including the funk of James Brown and soul music before that, sort of traveling back to Africa and influencing uh, many African musicians. Um, it's part of a kind of, you know, ongoing crisscrossing of culture that, you know, suggests that, you know, this, the, the transatlantic black identity, it kind of ends up kind of going a full circle. But anyway, maybe we'll, we'll talk about that a bit more next time. Um, but this was James Brown's observation. Um, and during this, this, his trip to Zambia, uh, James Brown was named the state head of music by uh, Kenneth Cowander and was offered land. Uh, and he promised to return the following year, which he, he didn't do in the end. But James Brown then also um, went to Nigeria and they went to hear Fella perform at the shrine. And as a result of this, um, and this, I don't know to what extent this has been sort of written up in the histories uh, of James Brown and funk music, but also following this visit, attempted to capture some of Fella's, and I quote, uh, African feel, that's a James Brown quote, in, in James Brown's music. Um, so Tony Allen, who's a fella's drummer and this kind of key architect of Afrobeat, uh, who passed away, I think it was, was it two years ago now? Um, he claimed that James Brown sent his arranger, Dave, David Matthews, to check him out. And Tony Allen said, he watches the movement of my legs and the movement of my hands, and he starts writing down. They picked up a lot from fella when they came to Nigeria. It's like both of them sort of influenced each other. Fella got influenced by America. James Brown got got the influence in Africa. So I oft, I personally have often thought that it was kind of Fella who was influenced by James Brown. But this is kind of this is a bit. It was a bit of an interesting twist as I was reading reading this book in the run up to today's recording. Uh, and also the bass player for James Brown, William Bootsy Collins, uh, recalled Fella had a club in Lagos and we came to the club and they were treating us like kings. We were telling them that they're the funkiest cats we ever heard in our life. I mean, this is the James Brown band, but we were totally wiped out. So again, it's kind of, you know, re-emphasizing your point about the you know the extraordinary sort of um, how, just how compelling uh, this music was that was being recorded, you know, by Feller amongst as well as many other African musicians. Dave Matthews, also James Brown's arranger, said it was the most amazing thing I had ever heard. This is going to the shrine. It was the early years of what Feller had called the Afrobeat, and to some degree, it incorporated James's style and rhythms. Uh, they had a James Brown rhythm section plus eight percussionists doing the African rhythm thing. And it was, you couldn't sit down when they were playing. It was just so infectious. It was an amazing experience. 
And uh, what they go on to conclude is effectively that uh, James, you know, Brown, as a result of this visit, uh, started to attempt to incorporate uh, what this early sound of Afrobeat into his own funk. Um, so the a record that captures this um, is uh, There Was a Time uh, I Got to Move, uh, which is a 1970 uh, James Brown record. Uh, some people say it's one of, you know, one of the great James Brown records that for some reason hasn't got the kind of, you know, the popularity of some of James Brown's other sort of big hits. Um, so I'm not sure quite why that came about. But anyway, let's listen to this track. There was a time that is recorded by James Brown after returning from this trip to the shrine uh, during the tour of Africa. Well, uh, I do my thing. That's great. That's really fantastic and fascinating. And yeah, I, I mean, I've really been thinking about what it is about this African music. I mean, really from, because from Geraldo Pino onwards, really, there's this wave of music um, which goes well into the 70s and into the 80s, in which to, to some extent, indeed, the sort of, the sort of implied aspiration of funk, like what funk music is trying to achieve somehow just seems to be achieved, like to my ears, with a greater sort of, you know, to some different level to anything that American punk artists ever quite managed. It's something about, I mean, if the, the way I always explain this to students is that the basic idea of funk, the basic idea of James Brown is you turn all of the instruments in basically into, into sort of percussion instruments. So even melodic instruments mm. like guitar or sax, you're playing these little licks, which although they are melodic, they have a sort of percussive function in, in, and a rhythmic function all the time in the music. But somehow the African musicians, they seem to be able to do that while retaining a level of melodic complexity, which the American musicians, are, I don't think, can ever quite match. Somehow they're able to do that thing of taking sort of little melodic bursts all, all just rhythmic kind of burst on the drums, which then get repeated and kind of played around with to build up this holy kind of rhythmic experience. But it always has a slightly higher level of complexity uh, to what anyone else can manage. Like the individual units, I think. You know, it ends up with, you know, by the 80s, you've got these, you know, these African guitarists doing this incredibly, you know, complex kind of picking style while also being kind of really rhythmic. Like it's it's more like listening to kind of tabla, you know, percussion cycles than it is like listening to any kind of European or American music. So it is really sort of uh, extraordinary. Just personally for listening to at home and for DJing, actually, I, I really, I do, I end up playing more of this, of African stuff from the period we're now going into than I do American stuff. Um, American funk, anyway. Um, not, I mean, not. I mean, d disco is a different thing. No, I, I agree. And I, one thing that occurred to me while you're saying that is, it's about sort of duration of the music. In part, a lot of the African records recording during this period are of long duration. They are jams. They last for you know six minutes, eight minutes, twelve minutes. Uh, and there's not that much soul yeah. music being recorded in the United States that does that. We know that people like David Mancuso and Francis Grasso are looking for long album cuts because that's where, you know, the musicians tend to get the opportunity to, you know, explore and stretch out. Um, 
but for the most part, you know, uh, a lot of soul music and uh, is especially is being kind of recorded as a is as a seven inch single. Whereas it seems that you know on a lot of these African albums, you know, there is this you know the the focus is on uh, at least there are these albums in circulation, and a lot of the tracks are are indeed you know, long, and it gives a it allows the musicians to to open up and do things that would become much more common in the United States, maybe around 1976 with the rise of the 12 inch single anyway. Yeah, I think that's right. And actually, if I think about, well, who is doing, who in the States, for example, has, has that sensibility at that moment, that early, I mean, arguably it's really, again, it's the Grateful Dead, you know, it's the Grateful Dead who are doing these like 20 minute jams based on this quite intricate, very intricate kind of a instrumentation a lot of the time. It's, um, there's something of that sensibility. To me, there's a real sort of affinity, although it doesn't have anything like the kind of percussive skill. There's a kind of affinity between even the, those kind of Grateful Dead jams and the, the sanctuary and the shrine jams, which mm. I think is really uh, sort of interesting. And certainly the, the, the idea that the James, the, the, Felicuzzi's music and the Afro, the early Afrobeat has this sort of psychedelic intensity is not an idea which is lost on various musicians. I mean, people like the Grateful Dead by some, by very, later in the 70s are listening to a lot of this African stuff, certainly. And some members of, the, of that band go on to do uh, sort of solo projects that are quite influenced. But what the earliest example of this is probably Ginger Baker, who had been the drummer with Cream, the so-called supergroup that launched Eric Clapton into the world and was a very sort of ambitious, sort of musically ambitious drummer, really interesting figure. He sort of comes out of the British rhythm and blues scene, but uh, like, you know, he's like a few, like like a few musicians at that time, he sort of moves towards jazz in the search for something that's more sort of instrumentally satisfying uh, than rhythm and blues and, and, and blues rock. Uh, and he, but he ends up gravitating towards Africa. He ended up living in Africa for a few years. This is a so this recording from 1971 is from a quite famous live album with I think it's Ginger Baker is playing. I think he's playing alongside Tony Allen um, or as part of the Felicuti's Africa 70. It's released as Africa 70 with Ginger Baker, and the track we could hear from that we could hear the track Black Man's Cry. So that I think that I think is really sort of ex- extraordinary. Again, you can really hear and hear the way Felicuti is starting. He's doing things like singing in uh, pidgin English, which is the sort of uh, vernacular, um, the sort of you know, you know transnational vernacular of um, of of that part of uh, of Africa, kind of Western Central Africa in particular, and East Africa actually, and. It really giving expression to this sort of pan-Africanist philosophy, which he's very influenced by, as well as his sort of commitment to a certain kind of, you know, democratic nationalism within Nigeria. You know, pan-Africanism is this idea that's been around since the end of the 19th century, that that really there should be a sort of, uh, well, as I say, a pan-Africanist, an all-African sort of politics and, and liberation movement. And then maybe... One more track we could play is one of the most famous, probably probably the sort of definitive example of the early Afrobeat style 
in its fully realized form would be next track. So why don't you introduce that one? Yeah, absolutely. This is a uh, fellow Kuti Shakara uh, released in, in Nigeria in 1972, and then the United States in in 1974. And yeah, I think this record does kind of mark Afrobeat's transition from its kind of earlier stage into something that's kind of you know more fully developed. I mean, apart apart from anything else, um, the uh, Viva Africa, if I'm remembering the title of that track correctly track also i think lasted for four minutes whereas uh, shikara i think oh, sorry three minutes yeah just under four minutes whereas shikara um i believe is a i can't remember if it's a nine minute track or it's a, no sorry it's maybe a 13 minute track so it's just that it's just you just it's just a different aesthetic you can get lo- you clearly get lost in the music and certainly with the kind of funk groove element that becomes so prominent and important to afro b is driven you know taken forward by in particular tony allen um, you know, it just becomes something which uh, opens up in, in compelling ways uh, that contrasts with sort of that earlier track. You know, within the Vivan Nigeria, I think there's still elements of high life and it is less funk or, uh, less funk oriented. There is less of an emphasis on the beat. And as I said earlier, it's not the, the Viva Nigeria is also about sort of Nigerian unity and saying sort of war is not the answer. Nigeria is one nation indivisible, but Fela didn't really believe in this. And his political views were becoming a lot more foregrounded following his return from Los Angeles. And his belief that the Nigerian government was, you know, effectively, you know, corrupt and was involved in sort of running a, an oppressive uh, dictatorial sort of or semi-dictatorial uh, certain, uh, uh, regime in which separate tribes were being sort of forcibly bound together, often against their interests and were, you know, being systematically exploited by a sort of, you know, a state that was being funded um, through petrol revenue. Uh, petrol was nationalised uh, sometime in the early 1970s, I think, partly partly through pressure from OPEC. And it was through this kind of, you know, significant wealth that was being generated through petrol that the the, the government was also kind of, you know, favouring certain groups that were, you know, complying and doing them favours over others. But, you know, enraged figures such as as, as Fela Kuti. Um, so Shakara just, just takes... This this new sensibility, anyway, into a into a, I would say, a different dimension. Um, it's maybe you know, it might be it might be one of the first fully realized uh, Afrobeat tracks. Uh, it did it sort of, and it be, it became kind of a sort of something of a sensation in in West Africa, um, and also then um, subsequently uh, in the United States when it was released in in 1974. I have I have previously I have always assumed um that this was was a kind of regular record um for David Mancuso in particular at the loft um he had, David had played Manu Dibango and was tuned into this kind of aesthetic but I'm not 100% sure that this was the case it did uh, this record did appear on a bootleg 
uh, Loft Classic series that David often was quite upset about because he wasn't consulted about it, and it, you know he didn't he wasn't part of the group that released these Loft Classics. And he he so Shakara was on this Loft Classic series, and it I think it was I that, didn't realize that. Uh, yeah, I think that was one of the reasons why I assumed that it was kind of one of David's kind of favorite records or a big record for him. And it is such a perfect Loft record, um, but you know on on sort of. But it did turn out that not all of the records on that series were records that David did play regularly. And um, it's just something I want to kind of nail down. It may be that in sort of interviews I did with David, at some point he mentioned mentioned this, but I don't want to completely assume that was the case. Um, and I kind of want to sort of dig around a bit more for, for that. I don't remember ever hearing David play any of this stuff. and I But I know I can tell you just I would play it at home sometimes when he was around and it always seemed really familiar to him. Yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely. It's just, um, I mean, if it's one of the records that Dave didn't play, and we don't know he didn't play it, um, it's a record that would just work absolutely perfectly. You're listening to Love is the Message. Okay. The so, final record for today is we're going to play something about the Lijardu sisters. Lijardu sisters, Taiwo and, Taiwo and Kahinde Lijardu, born in the 1940s. They're a Nigerian duo. And their music, better known these days, is their music from the second half of the 70s, which sort of brings together Afrobeat and American disco and a sort of soul sound in, a, in quite a unique way. I think they were actually cousins of Felicutis. Yeah, they were, they were related to Felicutis. But this track, this is from their first album, and the album is called Urede, and the track is called Fasi Ribo. Uh, we'll play that, and then I'll say something about it. <laughs> So that track to me, that's much more sort of laid back than everything else we've been playing today. doesn't have the sort of manic energy of the um, Geraldo Pino or the intensive, percussive intensity of Fela, but it has a very um, strong kind of percussive sensibility. And it's kind of space, this very spacious quality it has and the use of, uh, I'm pretty sure it's a Rhodes, it's some kind of electric piano very kind of reminiscent of, of some of the Miles stuff and other people at, at the same time, people like Herbie Hancock. And it has this very kind of laid back, I would say very sort of trippy quality, which I think really anticipates a lot of the most interesting African music from a bit later in the decade. You know, people like Francis Bebe, people like um, William Onyebo, people like uh, King Sonny Ade, when his stuff get, takes, ends up taking on that kind of quality later. So I think it's a really interesting piece of music, which in some ways um, is a sort of bridge between the, the American manifestations of what we'd call kind of Afro-psychedelia and the more kind of obviously sort of psychedelic elements of African music in, later in the decade. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's, uh, it's, I mean, it's a lovely record. It was the one thing I've just can you know think about this record or how to add to what you've said is that there's it's got more of a kind of arguably a Caribbean or reggae kind of sensibility to its. Kind oh yeah, of, that's true. Actually, aesthetic, yeah, it's a bit of kind of dub, say. dub vibe. Yeah, and, on, isn't there? 
Yeah, and that and that's very and that that's kind of accounts for its kind of softer, gentler kind of feel, maybe uh, more of a lull, more of a lulling kind of you know um, you know semi mystical kind of aesthetic. Um, but that also speaks again to the sort of the sheer complexity. I think reggae was re- becoming really big in in Africa yeah it was yeah it period. was yeah. yeah yeah. And so you know maybe this is something we'll we'll think about a bit more at some point. But that's what that speaks to, and it returns us to this point of the complexity of the crisscrossing movements between people and sound of the African diaspora, not only as it moves out from through the slave trade across the triangle that this triangular this triangular kind of map of of the black atlantic but also then starts to rebound back into africa itself with all these kind of all this great music that comes out so okay that's fantastic yeah all right well thanks guys that's it for today uh we've just finished a three episodes on afrofuturism for patrons so if you're not a patron and uh you think that sounds interesting then go and have a listen uh, we really do appreciate uh, people signing up and um, we you know we always and um uh, whether or not you can do that as well if you can just click on our uh, apple podcast or whatever and give the show a five star rating you don't have to write a review even in, unless you want to then that really does help people find the show and helps us keep growing so Uh, Thanks very much for listening. Thanks very much for your support. Uh, We'll see you next time. Uh, Bye, Tim. Bye, Jem. See you soon. Thanks, everyone. Hi, guys. Yep, as Jem and Tim just said, really grateful to all our patrons, new and old. Um, If you'd like to become one, there's a link in the show notes. We'll be taking a very short Christmas break, but we'll be back bright and early in the new year to continue this series. Happy Christmas, Happy New Year, from us that love the message, to you. Tune in, turn on, get down!